Hello and welcome to episode 54, part 2, and the first subject is vaccines. This is in The Guardian. Revealed, Amazon Smile helps fund anti-vaccine groups. Amazon appears to be helping fund anti-vaccine not-for-profit organisations through its charity arm, the Amazon Smile Foundation, The Guardian can reveal. The Amazon Smile fundraising program, through which Amazon donates 0.5% of the purchase price of a shopper's Amazon transactions to an organisation of their choice, is promoted on the websites of four prominent anti-vaccine organisations, National Vaccine Information Centre, Physicians for Informed Consent, Learn the Risk and Age of Autism. Numerous other anti-vaccine organisations, including American Citizens for Health Choice, National Health Freedom Coalition, Michigan for Vaccine Choice, Texans for Vaccine Freedom, a Voice for Choice and the Informed Consent Action Network are also listed by Amazon as eligible for the donations. Amazon's donations are just the latest example of how US tech companies have, wittingly or not, helped to promote and finance the anti-vaccine movement. Facebook and YouTube have already faced criticism over the proliferation of anti-vaccine propaganda, which promotes false information casting doubt on the safety and efficacy of vaccines. Misinformation frequently outperforms science on the platforms and self-serve advertising tools that empower anti-vaxxers to target parents with fear-mongering propaganda. Well, who says it's fear-mongering propaganda? Not-for-profit organisations are key players in the anti-vaccine movement in the US. Groups such as the NVIC and ACHC advocate for legislation to allow parents to exempt their children from vaccination for non-medical reasons. Other groups promote messaging that calls into question the safety and efficacy of vaccines. Age of Autism, for example, styles itself as the daily web newspaper of the autism epidemic. The site publishes a steady stream of content emphasising the dangers of vaccination and promoting the discredited idea. It says here that autism is caused by excessive vaccinations. Each page on the site also includes a widget which reads Support Autism Age. When you shop at smile.amazon.com, Amazon donates. The Amazon Smile Foundation was launched in 2013 and has thus far donated nearly $125 million to not-for-profit organisations. The foundation's funds come directly from Amazon and Amazon customers can choose from one of more than 1 million eligible tax-exempt public charitable organisations. The top recipients of Amazon Smile's donations include well-known charities such as the St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital. The top recipients of Amazon Smile's donations include well-known charities such as the St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital, the Wounded Warrior Projects, the American Red Cross, and Doctors Without Borders. But the program has also faced some criticism in the past over donations to the NRA Foundation and other gun rights organizations. It is not clear how much money anti-vaccine organizations have received from Amazon Smile. The Foundation's financial disclosure of 2016 includes a 1,496-page spreadsheet of recipient organizations, which is not machine-readable and not in alphabetical order. In 2017, the most recent year for which the disclosures are available, Amazon and Smile did not release an itemised list of disbursements. The sums are probably small, however, as are the budgets of most of the anti-vax organisations. NVIC has among the largest budgets with a 2017 revenue of $1.2 million, but groups such as ACHC, Physicians for Informed Consent and Learn the Risk, all have annual revenues of less than $100,000 according to tax filings. Well, it might be asked why anti-vaccine organisations have such profits. Maybe because people are starting to question vaccines more, which they are. Amazon did not directly comment on the donations to anti-vaccine organisations. A spokeswoman noted that groups that engage in, support, encourage or promote intolerance, hate, terrorism, violence, money laundering or other illegal activities are not eligible for Amazon Smile. The company follows recommendations from the US Office of Foreign Assets Control and the Southern Poverty Law Centre 
Southern Poverty Law Center, one of the elite Zionist organizations. For what that means, see episode 10. The company, Amazon, an elite Zionist organization itself, follows recommendations from the U.S. Office of Foreign Assets Control and the Southern Poverty Law Center to determine which groups are ineligible, this spokeswoman said. Amazon is also helping to finance one prominent anti-vaxxer who does not operate through a not-for-profit, Larry Cook. Cook has gained notoriety as the founder of Stop Mandatory Vaccination, a website, Facebook page, and private Facebook group with more than 150,000 members. Cook has raised nearly $80,000 on GoFundMe since 2015. He also solicits donations on his website and markets anti-vaccine t-shirts through Teespring. Until recently, Cook also earned money through his YouTube channel, which promoted anti-vaccine videos, but YouTube demonetized the channel following queries from BuzzFeed News. I've talked before about the way social media giants are censoring and moving towards the end goal, which was always the plan, where people only see and hear what the establishment wants them to see and hear. And social media is a massive vehicle for that, as I talk about in episode 27. And this is the inverted world we live in. Mandatory vaccination. What greater definition of tyranny is there than not being able to decide what goes into your own body or your children's body? Because that's what mandatory vaccinations are. Of course there should not be mandatory vaccinations. The goal in the end, and this is happening, is all vaccinations are mandatory. And it will be made harder and harder to function in society unless you're vaccinated. Taking away benefits is one way this is being done already. If you're not vaccinated, you don't get your benefits. The goal in the end is that we have mandatory vaccinations because they want access to the body and they want to destroy health for reasons I explained in episode 44, part 2. The article goes on. Following YouTube's decision to demonetize Cook's videos on the 22nd of February, Cook began soliciting direct donations to help offset this financial loss inside the Stop Mandatory Vaccinations Facebook group. He also began aggressively promoting an Amazon storefront through which followers can purchase a selection of anti-vaccine books and DVDs as well as nutritional supplements that he recommends. You see, this is the thing. If you are working full-time to communicate information that is suppressed by the mainstream, how are you going to do it unless you find funding from somewhere to allow you to do it full-time? And this is why YouTube is demonetizing videos of people saying things and communicating information outside the official narrative. And it's only a tiny amount of income for those that are monetized on YouTube. Just enough so that they can carry on doing it full time. The article goes on. The storefront is part of Amazon's influencer program which allows people with large social media followings to set up a store of recommended products and earn a cut if their followers make purchases. Cook's stop mandatory vaccination page includes a disclosure that SMV earns money from this storefront. Since 25th of February, Cook has shared a link to the storefront to the private SMV group 17 times. You see, the question is, and this is the question that's never asked, especially in the mainstream, is what the person says true? That question is never asked, because it's assumed that it's not. The starting point is what this person says is a load of crap, so 
Why are they doing it? Ah, they're doing it to make money. There we go, that's the end of that. It can't be true because it's not on the television or in the newspaper. If it was, people would believe that it was true without a first thought. Never mind a second one. Even though it's exactly the same information. And people believe that they are in control of their own minds. The article goes on. Amazon has also come under scrutiny for its role in providing a platform to anti-vaccine propaganda in recent weeks. Adam Schiff, chair of the House Intelligence Committee, wrote to Amazon's chief executive Jeff Bezos on the 1st of March to express concern that Amazon is servicing and recommending products and content that discourage parents from vaccinating their children. Schiff cited a report by CNN Business which found that Amazon search results for vaccine were dominated by anti-vaccine books and movies, including the disgraced former physician Andrew Wakefield's movie Vaxxed, which was available for streaming on Amazon's prime video platform. Hours after Schiff's letter was released, Amazon removed several anti-vax movies from prime video BuzzFeed News reported. And there's a footnote added here. A lawyer for physicians for informed consent contacted The Guardian after publication to say that PIC does not consider itself to be an anti-vaccine organization, but rather is ethically opposed to the coercion of vaccination, including the mandatory vaccination of school children. To clarify, this article uses the term anti-vaccine to describe any group that advocates for legislation to allow parents to exempt children from vaccination for non-medical reasons or promotes messaging that calls into question the safety and efficacy of vaccines. PIC is opposed to vaccine mandates. It's lawyer noted because PIC is pro-informed consent. Right. What all this is, is what I've talked about before. The social media giants don't want to just come out and say, we're censoring content. They can do that to an extent where they can get away with it. But what they do is they wait until other people complain about content on their platform. And then they use the excuse of... Well, we want to be all about letting people share information. We don't really want to censor it, but we've got to now, so they censor it. When they were always going to censor it, they just needed the excuse of people complaining to do it. Because they've got to give the impression to the people that the social media giants are about free flow of information. You can say whatever you like, even though there's mounting evidence increasing all the time that that is not the case. But you've still got to give the impression of it. And I talk about the elite the less than 1%, people call them 1%, I say less than 1%, and their agenda. And if people ask, what is the agenda? What are the different areas of the agenda? Then I would say, anything you're not allowed to have an opinion about is a sign that it's the agenda, like vaccines, gender, Israel, Zionism. All these different subjects. If you're not allowed an opinion, if you receive a massive backlash for talking about it, not just from people in general, but from the establishment. If you're working in the establishment, when it comes down on you like a ton of bricks, then there's a good chance you're saying something which needs saying. This is where the censorship from the Silicon Valley internet giants comes in. These social media platforms are apparently under pressure to delete content about various subjects when they've been waiting for that moment all along. One of the scams played to advance the elite's agenda is to introduce something and make it voluntary and then as more and more people take it on then you make it more and more difficult to operate without it this is what happened with mobile phones you don't have to buy a mobile phone but you try operating in today's world without one and i've talked about the bigger agenda behind technology in episodes 10 and 11 and it's the same with vaccines they're voluntary in most places, still, just. But it's being made increasingly difficult to operate without a vaccine. 
certain places you can't go already if you're not vaccinated in some countries. And targeting anti-vaxxers, which is a catch-all term for people who have actually done their own research into vaccines and are questioning vaccines for them and their children. They have to come up with a buzzword. And anti-vaxxers is the phrase. So people just see them as that. Just a label, and they don't see them as anything else. Anti-vaxxers. That's why these buzzwords are invented. Just like climate deniers. It's the same thing. Get people to think of a label. So they'd apply that to that person or those people. The vaccine official narrative was under threat when people started to get the diseases they were vaccinated against. And there's another article here from WA Today. That's Western Australia Today. This is from April 2010. I came across this while I was writing this episode. Flu vaccination ban goes national after fever and convulsions in children. Seasonal flu vaccinations across Australia for children under five have been suspended after 23 children in Western Australia were admitted to hospital with convulsions following their injections. One child, aged one, remains in a coma in a Perth hospital. Commonwealth Chief Health Officer Professor Jim Bishop yesterday announced the suspension while authorities urgently review data from around the country. WA's Chief Public Health Officer Taryn Wiramanthri has defended their response time in closing down the state's juvenile flu vaccine program amid revelations that children were presenting with convulsions more than two weeks ago. More than 60 children around the state may have had adverse reactions to the vaccine, including fevers, vomiting and febrile convulsions, a type of fit brought on by a high fever. One child remains in a critical condition in hospital after being given the vaccine. Dr. Wiramant III said he had few details on the child's condition, but they were seriously ill. He had a national process set by the Therapeutic Goods Administration. He said, a national process set by the Therapeutic Goods Administration. That's a national health agency in Australia. It's basically the equivalent of Public Health England and the Department of Health and Social Care in Britain, the Centre for Disease Control and Prevention in America, the United States Department of Health and Human Services, all these official health agencies. Dr. Weaverman III said a national process set with the Therapeutic Goods Administration had been observed in responding to the reactions. Under the process, the best clinical information was collected from as many doctors as possible and an assessment made on the totality of that. We take all reports very seriously and we believe we've acted in a very timely fashion, Dr. Weaverman III said. We've been monitoring the situation, we've been talking to clinicians, we've acted as soon as we can. He said that since this year's vaccine program started a month ago, 23 children under the age of 10 had presented to Princess Margaret Hospital with convulsions related to vaccinations they had received less than 12 hours before. Another 40 convulsion cases have been detected in the past month in children at other metropolitan hospitals and in Bunbury. Doctors are now working to determine how many of those children received the flu vaccine. Aside from the convulsions, affected children were suffering fever and vomiting within 12 hours of their flu shots. A teleconference today with state, territory and TGA officials confirmed the picture in other states would not be available for a few days. Dr. Weaver-Mantri said the TGA was assessing the geographical spread of symptoms across Australia and directly testing batches of vaccines for any impurity. Health authorities are also working to determine if the entire flu vaccine drug or just batches have caused the symptoms whether an alternative vaccine should be used. University of Western Australia School of Paediatrics and Child Health Associate Professor Peter Richmond said that only flu vaccine produced by Australia's biggest biopharmaceutical company, CSL, was being used to vaccinate children in WA. 
Dr. Richmond said researchers were trying to determine whether it was the entire vaccine or just batches that had caused the problems, which today prompted Australia's chief medical officer to tell doctors to stop giving the vaccine to children. He said the side effects have been largely limited to children under the age of five and he would not recommend that anybody in other groups, including elderly people, cancel their flu shots. This is not a long-term safety issue with vaccines, Dr. Richmond told wa.today.com.au. He recommended parents of young children who had received only the first of the required two vaccination doses hold off on the second dose for now. This was despite the fact children who had no side effects from their first dose were unlikely to receive complications from their second. Dr. Richmond said the first dose provided partial protection against the flu anyway. Well, he says. He said researchers were examining whether an alternative drug to flu vaccine could be used for the second dose generally scheduled for four weeks after the first. Researchers were also trying to determine if the problem with flu vaccine was temporary only and whether the drug could still be used in coming weeks for the second dose. He stressed the vast majority of children receiving flu vaccines suffered no complications. But some of them have. So the question is why? Commonwealth Chief Medical Officer Jim Bishop issued a national warning to GPs not to use the vaccine following a decision last night by the WA government to suspend the free vaccination program for children under five over concerns it was causing high fevers and convulsions. We suggest doctors and health professionals vaccinating children don't use the seasonal We suggest doctors and health professionals vaccinating children don't use the seasonal flu vaccine for the moment until we can get the Therapeutic Goods Administration to investigate this in more detail. Professor Bishop told ABC TV. And what will the Therapeutic Goods Administration do? They'll give out the official line on vaccines. He said the concerns stemmed from a significant rise in the number of children developing a fever after receiving the vaccine. We need more information about what's happened in WA, but also what we can now find out from all the other states from their experience, Professor Bishop said. If this has been brought up as a possible side effect of this drug, then we ought to at least suspend its use until we know more. In light of the seasonal flu shot suspension, Professor Bishop suggested children get vaccinated against swine flu instead, because that could be a health risk this winter too. Well, how about investigating that vaccine as well? first in case that causes problems like this flu shot did he said there did not appear to be any side effects from the swine flu vaccine panvax well he's just repeating what he's been told i'm sure the tga's assessment of clinical trials and the advice of its expert committees is that panvax is a safe effective vaccine for prevention of the h1n1 influenza here we go the tga's assessment this official health agency says it's safe well i'm shocked it is expected that the dominant flu this winter season will be swine flu and the specific panvax vaccine is available free for all australians but of course it's free they want as many people to get vaccinated as possible for reasons i explained in episode 44 part 2. perth mother of two b flint said her 11 month old boy avery had a seizure after receiving the first dose of the two dose flu vaccination on saturday Miss Flint said that after the 9am vaccination, she noticed Avery had a minor temperature about 2pm. She treated him with Panadol and by Avery's 7pm bedtime, he seemed okay. However, at 7.45pm, Avery started whimpering and moaning. Why give someone a pharmaceutical drug to try to mitigate the effects caused by a vaccine recommended by the pharmaceutical cartel? When Mrs. Flint got to his cot, the baby had vomited and was lying on his side having a seizure. In the car driving to the hospital, he was just whimpering, she said. He couldn't cry. His head was hanging down in the car seat and he couldn't move. 
I was petrified. It was one of the worst experiences in my life. By the time Avery arrived at St. John of God Hospital in Murdoch, he was burning up with a fever of 39.5 degrees. The doctor who treated Avery told Mrs. Flint her baby was the fifth child with similar symptoms admitted to the hospital that day. Health Minister Kim Hammers last night advised of the statewide suspension as a precautionary measure. He said the suspension came after a significant rise in the number of children who had developed a high temperature after receiving the vaccine. He said some children had gone to febrile convulsions, a fit caused by a high fever, following the vaccinations. Dr. Hammer said it was unclear if the fevers were related to the influenza vaccination, but the precautionary measure was the most responsible course of action. So you've got a flu vaccine, and one of the classic symptoms of the flu is a high fever, and the vaccine causes a high fever. Fevers in most instances are treatable. Yeah, but not by vaccines, clearly. People should give paracetamol according to the instructions and tepid sponging to keep the temperature down, Dr. Hammer said. How about not giving more pharmaceutical medicine to try to mitigate the effects of a problem caused by pharmaceutical medicine or a pharmaceutical form of treatment? On rare occasions, children can have a convulsion as the result of the high temperature, and sometimes that can be prolonged, which can be a risk to the child. He said parents should not take children under the age of five to be vaccinated against influenza until further notice. And so because people started getting the illness they were vaccinated against, the herd immunity scam was invented, where we're told that the vaccines only work when a large amount of people are vaccinated. But the obvious flaw in this argument is that everyone's immune system is individual. It's not, you know, Joe's down the road's immune system that's fighting this condition or illness. It's yours. It's your immune system, not anyone else's. So if you're vaccinated, you should be protected, no matter how many other people are or not vaccinated. If vaccines work and really do what we're told they do, I know of two guys who were men now, but when they were kids, they never had a single vaccination. They never got a single childhood disease or illness. But their mates at school who were vaccinated did get ill, did get illnesses and conditions. So who had the more and has the more efficient and stronger immune system? Vaccines exist to destroy the immune system. I've talked about vaccines in episode 44, part 2. The immune system, if operating at peak efficiency and strength, stops us getting any illness. The immune system becomes stronger by being exposed to childhood illness because it reads the code of the rogue information in the body computer and learns to deal with the rogue information if it ever enters the body computer again. The body is a computer. It's a biological computer. It can process information and think for itself up to a point. For example, if you cut yourself, you don't think, right, immune system, heal the cut. It just does it because it has that capability. I play guitar. I've played guitar for 11 years now and my guitar teacher said to me many times that eventually after you've learned a chord or a, a riff well enough, your fingers become what he called thinking fingers in the sense that they can intelligently up to a point to allow you to play that piece. Obviously you're still in control of your fingers but there's a level of intelligence there, in a sense, in that context. 
information flows through the body just like a computer when you look at the meridian lines of the body it looks just like a circuit board and also ley lines of the planet are again a similar we have a hard drive an information storage system called dna we have a cpu which is the brain the central processing unit and the senses or sensors as it would be in terms of a piece of technology receive information they communicate it to the brain the brain decodes that information and we then hear or see or touch etc a computer gets data input from the mouse or the keyboard processes the data the cpu processes the data just the same as our cpu the brain processes data information and the computer acts upon it after it's been processed the body is a biological computer and we have a sleep mode and we have relevant to this story an antivirus system called the immune system and as i said vaccines exist to destroy the immune system which if it's operating at optimum efficiency and strength stops us from getting ill and when you're a kid as i said the immune system becomes stronger by being exposed to childhood illness because the computer reads the code of the rogue information it learns the code and so it knows how to deal with it if it ever enters the body computer again and I've heard it said, and I don't know if it's true, but I've heard it said that these childhood illnesses can be much worse for you if you get it later in life. So it's best to get it as a kid. So then the immune system, the antivirus system, knows how to deal with it from that point on. This process basically is reprogramming the body computer to allow it to adapt. Vaccines stop this process because they're an artificial method of supposedly treating the illness rather than allowing for the natural upgrading of the body computer and strengthening of the antivirus software the immune system of the body computer also toxins in vaccines and food and drink and all around us i talk about the toxic world we live in in episode 25 also devastates the immune system all the radiation all of it the radiation from technology wireless technology all of that underwhelms the immune system and stops it acting in the way it normally would another reason for vaccines is very possibly and almost certainly to inject nanotechnology into the body i talk about nanotechnology in episode 44 part one and the reason for nanotechnology being introduced into the body and this of course plays into the technological agenda which i talk about in episodes 10 and 11 vaccines are a scam and that would be fine as long as people were given access to all information and therefore had the chance to come to their own conclusions. It doesn't matter if it's a scam then because people would see that it is. But what happens instead is misinformation, fake news about vaccines is targeted. And there will be misinformation and fake news about vaccines out there, of course. And much of it comes from the pharmaceutical cartel. But we're told misinformation and fake news about vaccines needs to be targeted to avoid people being misled and not getting vaccines when they should and that people might not be able to discern fact from fiction well we know that already with the way that people go to the doctors in their droves to get vaccinated because the official agencies government department spokespeople in the media tell them they need to 
And see, it's like I've said before, fake news is not a problem in and of itself. The problem is that people don't take responsibility for their own perceptions. They don't take the time to investigate. If people did that, then there'd be no problem with fake news because people would see that it's fake news. And therefore, you don't need to censor, you don't need to crack down on fake news, you can keep it there. Let people get fake news all they want. No censorship necessary. As long as people take the responsibility to find out and take the responsibility of their own perceptions. Because then they'll see it's fake news and there's no problem. No censorship necessary. But to say that there needs to be a crackdown on misleading content on vaccine efficacy and safety so the public only see and hear the truth, what that really means is cracking down on the truth so the people only see and hear what suits the pharmaceutical cartel and the elite which owns the global pharmaceutical cartel ultimately and their agenda. This is why any questioning or criticism of vaccines is jumped on from a great height, especially if it's doctors or scientists, then the medical establishment, the scientific establishment and their medical and scientific colleagues turn on them, lose their funding. Because in a genuine, open, transparent public debate, the official line about vaccines will be shown to be the farce that it is. And if you can't win a debate, you don't have the debate. This is what happens with transgender and climate change. The official line cannot withstand debate so there is no debate therefore you don't have to win it and through the censorship and pressure the official line prevails any subject area in society where people are criticized and ostracized for communicating another view needs to be investigated because that doesn't happen on the scale it does for vaccines climate change transgender migration etc for no reason it happens because the official line cannot withstand debate and there's too much to come out if it was genuinely investigated and debated, which is why it needs to be debated. And the final subject for this episode is Ilian Omar, this Democrat candidate in America and comments she made about Americans and Israel. This is in the New York Times. She had a poor choice of words. Ilian Omar's constituents grapple with her remark. When Mohammed Ahmed's third grade daughter was assigned a school report about an African-American she admired, she chose to study her newly elected congresswoman, Ilian Omar. She's a hero to my daughter, said Mr. Ahmed, who, like the congresswoman, is Somali-American. She's a hero to my daughter, said Mr. Ahmed. She's a hero to my daughter, said Mr. Ahmed. Who, like the congresswoman, is Somali-American? She's an idol. They look up to her. They aspire to be her. But as Miss Omar's comments about American Jews in Israel drew bipartisan rebukes in recent weeks, culminating Thursday with a House vote condemning anti-Semitism and other forms of hate, Mr. Ahmed had a conversation with his eight-year-old daughter about Miss Omar. I told her she had a poor choice of words which hurt people, said Mr. Ahmed, who voted for Miss Omar, but was unsure whether he would do so again. And words matter if you're a leader. Across Minnesota's snow-covered 5th Congressional District, a bright blue bastion of independent coffee shops, Somali miles and proudly progressive politics. The voters who overwhelmingly elected Ms. Omar in November were conflicted about her recent remarks, sometimes along surprising lines. Ms. Omar's comments in the weeks of backlash raised questions about tolerance and free speech in a place that consistently elects a diverse slate of politicians. As well as concerns about the future of a carefully crafted rapport between leaders of the area's sizable Jewish and Muslim communities. 
course, there's a lot of Jewish people in New York. We don't want these issues to derail the relationship, said Steve Hunex, the executive director of the Jewish Community Relations Council in Minnesota and the Dakotas, who said he was appalled by Ms. Omar's most recent remarks. Ms. Omar's district, which spans Minneapolis and some of its inner ring suburbs, is a place attuned to religious tension. Long-time members of the Somali community still speak about the profiling they experienced in the years after the September the 11th attacks and about the fear they felt after a mosque was bombed by white supremacists in nearby Bloomington in 2017. In those difficult times, they said Jewish leaders in Minnesota made a point of stating their support. When a religion is under attack, they stand by us because they've been there, said Zahra Ali, a Somali-American resident of Minneapolis, who once saw Miss Omar's election as a beacon of hope but who did not plan to vote for her again. For her to go out there and target on a daily basis, Jews is very sad, Miss Ali said. Miss Omar, one of the first two Muslim women elected to Congress, was seen by voters as symbolic counterweight to President Trump, who is deeply unpopular in Minneapolis and who has spoken critically about the region's large Somali population. Miss Omar, a Somali refugee who came to the United States as a girl, received more than three quarters of the vote last year, taking over a seat that had been held by Keith Ellison a fellow Democrat and the country's first Muslim elected to Congress. Here in Minnesota, we don't only welcome immigrants, we send them to Washington. Ms. Omar told a jubilant crowd at her election night party. But shortly after her victory, Ms. Omar began drawing controversy with her remarks about Jews in Israel. At various points, she suggested that Israel was not a democracy, insinuated that American support for Israel was motivated by money from a pro-Israel lobbying group. A lot of money for American support for Israel comes from pro-Israel lobby groups and said pro-Israel activists were pushing for allegiance to a foreign country. I'll come to that in a minute. Rabbi Avi Elitsky, who helps lead a congregation in suburban St. Louis Park in Miss Omar's district, said some of his members had gone from wanting to make sure their congresswoman was better educated about anti-Semitism to frightened about her views. I think we've seen the recognition of the weight of her words, but the continual comments don't reflect that sensitivity, said Rabbi Olitsky, who said he had consulted with Ms. Omar and her aides in recent weeks. He suggested that the congresswoman should consider participating in bipartisan trips to Israel and making a visit to the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington. Still, he cautioned, I don't know about bouncing back from the damage already done. Ms. Omar, who has apologised for some of her remarks, why, has insisted that she is not anti-Semitic. She has also drawn attention to bigoted attacks against herself. Ms. Omar tweeted an image of threatening graffiti that was reported at a Minnesota gas station and suggested a double standard after West Virginia Republicans displayed a poster that linked fading memories of the 9-11 attached to her election. But what has 9-11 got to do with her election? But even with bipartisan misgivings about Ms. Omar, the biggest threat to her political future is from fellow Democrats, not Republicans, who are vastly outnumbered in her diverse, mostly urban district. There have already been mutterings about a primary challenge in 2020, though no such candidate has yet emerged patience among some Democrats is clearly wearing thin. Representative Omar has used up the reservoir of goodwill generally granted to those who begin new jobs by repeatedly insulting the Jewish people, even after being told that her words are dangerous and hurtful, said State Senator Ron Latz, a Democrat from St. Louis Park, in a recent statement. Mr. Latz called on the Congresswoman to discuss policy without inflaming religious conflict. The article goes on. Still, the deeply liberal makeup for Miss Omar's district, a mix of urban and suburban neighbourhoods where, where Black Lives Matter signs and LGBT rights flags are common sites, may shield her from political punishment. 
Miss Omar trounced her primary opponents last year and she built an enthusiastic coalition of supporters of different racial and religious identities. Just by the way, since that says LGBT, I talk about gender, fluid gender, transgender in episodes 8 and 26, as well as other episodes. Miss Omar trounced her primary opponents last year and she built an enthusiastic coalition of supporters of different racial and religious identities. And there are many constituents, including some Muslims, saw Miss Omar crossing a line and trafficking in anti-Semitic tropes. Others, including members of the district's Jewish community, said they were offended only by what they perceived as partisan, even racist attacks on their congresswoman for legitimate criticisms of Israel. Exactly. That's what happens if you criticise Israel. You get attacked. Why? What has Israel got to hide? I feel like she's being attacked because she's a black Muslim, said Ethan Walensky Lanford, 38, who was Jewish and who distributed campaign literature for Miss Omar last year. But it's probably more what she says about Israel. Anne Winkler Murray, also a Jewish resident of Miss Omar's district, said she had discussed the congresswoman's comments with her Somali friends and did not find the remarks offensive. She's speaking out about a foreign policy, whether you agree with her or not. Miss Winkler Murray said, it's actually an anti-Semitic idea that the state of Israel represents Jews and you have to show your allegiance to this state. It doesn't represent me, just as Saudi Arabia doesn't represent Muslims. Exactly. Zionism, the political philosophy of Israel, does not represent Jewish people. It exploits Jewish people for its own political ends. But the comments had created an uncomfortable rift in the district, even among loyal Democrats who usually agree on politics. Khalid Mohammed, a Somali-American resident of Minneapolis who said he turned from Miss Omar when she was a state legislator, reached out to a Jewish friend who had posted critiques of the congresswoman on Twitter. I told him that I needed to talk to him, Mr. Mohammed said. If a person thinks what Omar says is anti-Semitic, well, I have not lived as a Jewish person. Personally, I don't believe it, but let's put the feelings aside. Mr. Mohammed said he and his friend had planned to meet for a meal to talk it out on Friday sometime after morning prayers. There's another article here in The Guardian from the 2nd of March this year. Ilian Omar attacks pro-Israel lobby and critics again call remarks anti-Semitic. The Democratic representative... Ilian Omar has come under a fresh round of criticism for remarks about Israel that critics say are anti-Semitic. Speaking on Wednesday night at a forum at a Washington, D.C. bookstore with fellow freshman representative Rashida Tlaib of Michigan, the Minnesota Democrat said she fears everything they say about Israel is construed as anti-Semitic because they are Muslim. She said that prevents a broader debate about Israel's treatment of Palestinians. Well, they don't want anybody criticising Israel. Omar and Tlaib won their seats in November, becoming the first Muslim woman elected to Congress. The comments which Omar made when the questions turned to her previous criticism of the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, APAC, very influential on American politics, were first reported by the website Jewish Insider. Some Jewish leaders said she then revived an old trope about divided loyalties among Jewish Americans when she said... I want to talk about the political influence in this country that says it is okay for people to push for allegiance to a foreign country. Omar added, why is it okay for me to talk about the influence of the National Rifle Association or fossil fuel industries or Big Pharma and not talk about a powerful lobbying group that is influencing policy? Steve Hunegs, executive director of the Jewish Community Relations Council of Minnesota and the Dakotas, said in a statement he was appalled by Omar's suggestion that Jewish Americans have divided loyalties between the US and Israel. Well, Jewish Americans in general, perhaps not, but 
some of them will. Why wouldn't they? And certainly political leaders of America and political figures in America have more loyalty to Israel than to America. Her comment, Hugh next said, continues the unacceptable pattern of the congresswoman deploying anti-Semitic rhetoric when speaking about Jewish Americans' involvement in our nation's democratic process. The article goes on. Omar ignited a bipartisan uproar in Washington and at home in Minnesota last month when she suggested on Twitter that members of Congress support Israel for money. Or some of them do. Many Jewish leaders denounced their remarks as reviving old stereotypes about Jews, money and power. It's elite Zionists. That's the point. Whether they're Jewish or not is irrelevant. You don't have to be Jewish to be a Zionist, as former elite Zionist Vice President Joe Biden once correctly said. She apologised and said, Anti-Semitism is real and I am grateful for Jewish allies and colleagues who are educating me on the painful history of anti-Semitic tropes. I'll come into this whole thing about anti-Semitic tropes in a minute. Many progressive Jews rushed to her defence, however, saying it is not inherently anti-Semitic to criticise Israeli government policies or APAC, a leading pro-Israel lobbying group. Absolutely, it's not. But if you can persuade people it is, then you can brand people racist. And you can get people to look at those saying it as racist, which is the idea. Omar's spokesman, Jeremy Slevin, said on Friday she reiterated at Wednesday's event the remorse she feels for her comments last month and the pain she knows they caused. As she said in her apology... What does she apologise for? We must distinguish between criticism of a particular faith and fair critiques of lobbying groups. He added that she is... Well, that's correct. He added that she is... Well, that's correct. He added that she has consistently spoken out about the undue influence of lobbying groups of foreign interests of all kinds. Hugh Negg said he met Omar last week and found her new comments particularly insulting because he had showed her a photo of the grave of his cousin who died in France fighting for the US in the Second World War in order to illustrate the proud patriotism of Jewish Americans. Elite Zionists is what it's all really about. Our community is exasperated by Representative Omar's unfulfilled promises to listen and learn from Jewish constituents while seemingly simultaneously finding another opportunity to make an anti-Semitic remark and insult our community, Hunig said. But she's not talking about every Jewish person. She's talking about the fact that some Jewish Americans will have affection for Israel as well as America because they perceive that that's their historical home. And in that situation, why wouldn't they have affection for Israel and America and also that Zionists not so much Jews but elite Zionists especially those in political office in America their main focus is what Israel wants and by elite Zionists I mean people in political power and other positions of power and influence in society APAC tweeted the charge of dual loyalty not only raises the ominous spectre of classic anti-Semitism but it is also deeply insulting to the millions upon millions of patriotic Americans, Jewish and non-Jewish who stand by our democratic ally Israel. No, your controller Israel. That's more to the point. I'm not a supporter of Leon Omar because I don't know enough about her policies but from what I've read she's at least making points that need making. The problem with Leon Omar is she doesn't align with the new progressive left. Or if she does, she doesn't do it enough. The new progressive left, which has taken over the Democratic Party, just as the new progressive left has taken over the traditional left. This is the new George Soros-funded left, which is a massive proponent of the human-caused climate change scam, which I talk about in episodes 18 and 29. I'll talk about George Soros in episodes 3, 21, 36 and 46. 
This is the new left which supports abortion, which I talk about in episode 18. This is the new progressive left which supports feminism, which is about getting women into the workplace so they can be taxed and breaking up the family unit. This is the new progressive left which supports organisations like Planned Parenthood, a eugenics operation connected to the Rockefeller family, one of the elite less than 1% elite families in the elite network. This is also the new left which supports open borders and migration, which I talk about in episodes 12, 14 and 45. This is the new left which is behind deplatforming and censorship of free speech and expression. This is the new left whose adherents and followers are the foot soldiers for the elite's agenda without realising it. They think they're anti-establishment when they are the new establishment. Another reason Omar has been attacked is because one of the points she's been making is about Israel. She was willing at least at one point to criticise the psychopathic far-right regime in Israel. Anyone criticising Israel must be jumped off from a great height, because the psychopathic far-right regime in Israel has a colossal amount to hide. The pro-Israel lobby does not represent Jewish people. It represents the interests of the psychopathic far-right Israeli regime and elite Zionism. The condemnation of anti-Semitism and the cause to condemn anti-Semitism, in this case with Ilhan Omar, are just the same as the situation with the Labour Party. In Britain, which I talk about in episode 10, Omar said that certain US political figures are more aligned with the interests of Israel than America. They are. If you are the elite and you want control of global society, which they do, and you want to advance a coordinated global agenda, then you need connections between people in different political parties, countries and areas of society to allow the coordination and synchronization of your agenda. And one of the biggest is elite Zionism. The loyalty is then to Israel on elite Zionism over the interests of the country. Not that many political figures actually do care about their country, they're just there for self-interest and some of them to implement the elite's agenda, depending on their level of knowledge. And the few who genuinely are in politics to make change either don't get anywhere, or the system changes them, or they're manipulated by people around them. Omar has been accused of repeating anti-Semitic tropes, and this is a scam that's being played now. If you say that a tiny few people run global politics, banking, business, corporations, media, military, etc., that's anti-Semitic. Even if you don't mention Israel, Zionism, or Jewish people. Some people have said Jews control everything. It's all the Jews. Well, it's the elite Zionists. But what they've done is they've taken that and said, see, anybody who says that there's a tiny few people running all these different areas of society to their own nefarious ends, so well, that's anti-Semitic. Well, it's not. Not inherently. And it's anti-Semitic even if you don't mention Israel, Zionism, or Jewish people. That's what they're saying now. That's what this whole anti-Semitic trope thing is about. This is all part of the protection racket to silence criticism and exposure of elite Zionism and the psychopathic far-right Israeli regime. And to silence exposure of the agenda. And the fact that a tiny few people do run these areas of society. One thing we need to bear in mind is that when people are criticising Jews for their immense influence in all these different areas of society, especially politics, it's not so much Jews who are in those positions and have that influence as much as elite Zionists. It's Zionism's influence that matters. Many Jewish people actually protest against Zionism, elite Zionism, and create organisations to that end. Only a tiny few number of Jewish people are elite Zionists, and as former US Vice President to Obama, Joe Biden, once correctly said... You don't have to be Jewish to be a Zionist. He meant an elite Zionist. The Israeli control of US politics is incredible. To say that Israel influences US politics is to say that if you put your hands on the cooker when it's turned on, your hand might be a bit warm. The number of elite Zionists in the Pentagon and the White House compared with the number of Jewish people in the general population is stunning. 
as it is in Britain and elsewhere. Why? Why is there such a common theme through successive administrations in different countries of elite Zionist presence compared with the Jewish population in those countries? If it was Chinese or French or Catholics or Christians in key positions in society, in government, media, corporations, banking, etc., and you pointed it out asking why, that's fine. But say it about elite Zionists representing Israel, and that's a problem. Why? I've answered that question in episode 10. Another connection between the new fake progressive liberal left and this situation with Ilya Neymar is the groupthink of the progressives. The progressives in a PC mob see everyone as a group rather than individuals. And if those who see people in that way could look beyond identity labels and just see everyone as individuals, then there could be judgment not based on identity but based on actions and behaviour and right and wrong. Identity breeds contempt in terms of identity politics because the identity comes first, then action or inaction. Condemnation or silence when it should only be judging situations on their merit and on right and wrong and leaving identity politics and political correctness to one side. As a tweet I saw recently said, Why be politically correct when you can be right? Because political correctness is not concerned with right and wrong. This is the post-fact society we now live in where identity trumps facts. If the elite's agenda, which I've laid out during the course of pay-per-view, is going to be challenged and avoided, then truth needs to trump identity. Ilian Omar is an example of a scam called politics, whereby politicians who stand up for their views, if they're outside the official narrative, are condemned, and those who align with the official narrative, especially if they're serving the elite's agenda, can be very successful. The good news is that people are increasingly becoming wary of politics and are seeking a change. This is where populism has come from, which I talk about in episode 34. The next stage is to look beyond politics and instead of asking what are they going to do about it, ask what are we going to do about it. Because there's only a tiny few people knowingly behind what needs changing in society and millions and ultimately billions subject to what needs changing. So there is an answer, but people need to take the initiative and responsibility first instead of just moaning. But we've got this far, which is encouraging. So that's it for this week. That's the news. That's the context and connections. That's pay-per-view. More to come next week. Until then, goodbye.